Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by ExpressVPN. Make sure your online activity is secure by visiting expressvpn.com slash martini. Much more on them in just a little bit. Jim, let's talk about our good martini here because it's not often that uh, candidates from one party take out ads to slam other members of their own party. But when you're as deeply unpopular as Bill de Blasio and you're the one Democrat who represents a congressional district in New York City that's remotely competitive, you gotta you gotta protect yourself. So Max Rose, who represents predominantly Staten Island, has taken out, and maybe this is just social media since it's only six seconds, this is his whole ad. Bill de Blasio is the worst mayor in the history of New York City. That's the whole ad. So, so there you go. And... Uh, you know, obviously, he sees uh, any connection to de Blasio as uh, a political liability. I think it's also good that he sees himself vulnerable enough to the Republican nominee, Nicole Maliotakis, that uh, he needs to do this. So hopefully that means good things for her in a couple of months. But uh, what do you make of this, Jim? Yeah, I mean, your, your assessment of the politics is correct. Uh, I believe Staten Island was the only uh, uh, borough of New York City that went for Trump, if it didn't, it was his best one. Um, so it's it's kind of the Republican leaning uh, out of the five boroughs of the city uh, area that in within the New York City area. Um, it has uh, you know kind of white working class. You got a lot of cops, a lot of firefighters. So you know this is the area where the traditional liberal, let's just say Manhattan uh, image of the Democratic Party probably wouldn't sell quite as effectively as in the rest of the city. And so, yeah, maybe Max Rose is feeling a little bit nervous. I, I, I got to say, this ad kind of makes me a little bit of a fan. <laughs> you know, this is, this, you don't see somebody coming, like there's no, there's no parsing it. There's no expression of disappointment. There's no nuance. It's just, just straight up out there. This, I have a feeling, Greg, that we put together our end of the year list, <laughs> assuming we all make it to the end of the year. Um, that this ad will be on one of our, you know, lists for best best political maneuver or something like that. Because um, look, I, I didn't, you know, didn't know very much about Max Rose before this, and now at least he comes with a guy who's not willing to stick his neck out for a member of his party just because he's a Democrat and he's not willing to to soft pedal it either. Uh, by the way, this should be a giant flashing neon sign for Bill De Blasio. Like we already knew that there are a whole bunch of Democrats in the city who didn't really like him. And in fact, we've argued in past podcasts, at least I've thought that one of the reasons Andrew Cuomo gets this gushing over the top praise is because New York Democrats know de Blasio has been a disaster, particularly on the coronavirus. They can't let all of their leaders be complete failures in this. They have to have somebody to root for. So they convince themselves that, yeah, de Blasio's a mess, but Cuomo was the good one. So think about it. Max Rose didn't choose to run an attack ad against his Republican opponent. <laughs> what does that tell you about how New Yorkers and probably in particular Staten Islanders feel about Bill de Blasio right now? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, we talked about Bill de Blasio's uh, political prospects for next year. Apparently, uh, unbeknownst to me, Jim, maybe you heard this, that after Bloomberg convinced the council to lift the two term limit, apparently it's back in place now. So I guess he can't run next year. It is correct. So uh, uh, it was a one time. I think you need to be the richest man in the city. I think that's what it says in the <laughs> 
And the other thing is, if if Nicole Maliotakis, who is obviously Greek, and so, you know, that's a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for her here. She ran for mayor against de Blasio in 2017, took 67% of the vote in Staten Island. So while Max Rose is being kind of clever here, this is a total perfect setup for Maliotakis to say, huh, who did you vote for in 2017? <laughs> Ooh, I didn't even think about that, Greg. Good point. And if you voted for me... Why shouldn't people vote for me again? And if you voted for de Blasio back then, how lousy are you? The only good jujitsu defense there for Max Rose, and I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast, is to say, yes, you would have been a better choice than Bill de Blasio. That's not a very high bar to clear. Uh, So you definitely want to be rid of Bill de Blasio. You also want to be rid of internet privacy invasion. Look, we all take steps every day to protect our privacy, whether we realize it or not. We lock our doors. We close our curtains. We close our doors uh, when we want to have a private conversation. We close the bathroom door, of course. So using the Internet without ExpressVPN is kind of like using the Internet with taking those other precautions in your regular part of life. Did you know that your Internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon, for example, knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell that information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet so that your online activity cannot be seen by anyone. You should be using ExpressVPN on all your devices because it works on everything. Phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the door, the bathroom door, bedroom door, whatever door you need to have closed. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you are protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash martini today. You can use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash martini. And by doing so, you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about Woodward Gate in our bad martini here. Everything's gate now, thanks to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Carl Bernstein's still kind of coasting off of Watergate 46 years later. It's kind of an interesting career path, but hey, good for him if he can still get the checks to clear from these cable networks. But anyway, Bob Woodward's got a new book out about the Trump administration. Sat down with Trump 18 times, which has a lot of people scratching their heads because when was the last time Bob Woodward wrote a book that was favorable to any incumbent president, particularly a Republican? But uh, nonetheless, that's what happened. And the big headline is, is that Trump admitted to Bob Woodward on tape that he played down the severity of the coronavirus in order to not induce a panic. And so folks on the left are saying this is outrageous. Biden's calling him derelict. Uh, we need a president who can tell the truth. Uh, Jim, you're pointing out that most of what uh, he said to Woodward, he's said publicly here. And even yesterday on Fox News, Dr. Fauci seemed to say the same thing. So I, I'm, I may not be tuned in to the right thing that they're talking about, but I didn't really see any discrepancies between what he told us and what we told him and what he ultimately came out publicly and said. So, Jim, is this the tempest du jour or is this a game changer, as so many in the mainstream media seem to think it is? Well, the first thing you have to understand 
is not just oh you oh Bob Woodward Watergate you know all stuff no, no Bob Woodward is the figure who probably did more to influence the field of journalism after Watergate than anybody else, and it is because if you throw a stone in any newsroom. That assumes you can still find a newsroom of a newspaper that is open. But if it was, you know, you throw a stone, you would hit a guy, often a guy, but sometimes a girl, who dreams of having the giant scoop, who believes that with enough sufficient shoe leather investigative journalism and enough secret sources, anonymous sources like Deep Throat, that they can get, you know, they can nail that scalp, that they can get the big story that doesn't just, you know, that takes down a presidency, that changes the course of history. And perhaps most importantly, Robert Redford will play you in the movie. Um, in some people's eyes, this is you know not the first time that Robert Redford played someone who was malevolent and sinister and uh, seemed nice but had a secret agenda. Woodward, um, the head of Shield and Captain America, and of course Dan Rather. Um, but yeah, and of course your bu- your best buddy will be played by um, uh, Dustin Hoffman as kind of the slightly goofy, long haired uh, sidekick. Woodward, you know, his, his last 14, 15 books or so have had have all followed. They're all, you know, what some people call White House stenography. Generally, Woodward writes about the White House these days, and it generally consists of doing lots and lots of interviews with people who work in the White House and sometimes people on Capitol Hill as well. And there's a very clear rule to the Bob Woodward book. If you talk to him, you come across not so bad. If you don't talk to him, you come across as the biggest jerk in the entire story. So everyone has this giant incentive to talk to him. And generally, people can say, you can figure out who Woodward's sources are by how they come across in the story. Woodward has already written one book about uh, uh, Trump's presidency before. I can understand the logic that says, well, if you know, let's have the president talk to him. Maybe he'll come across better. This is the, there's a difference between let's have the president talk to him on the record and Trump calling up Woodward apparently out of the blue 18 times you know uh, you know not all, not every time is necessarily out of the blue but basically 18 on the record interviews and with the president just answering the questions not you know referring to notes just whatever popped into the president's mind who could have possibly foreseen that this would go badly who could have possibly imagined that having the president speak to Bob Woodward 18 times could turn into a book that would come out right before the election and make the president look bad. Did they think Woodward's book was going to wait until December, Christmas <laughs> season? You know, he wouldn't want to get this in. If Trump, look, by the way, keep in mind that if Trump loses the re-election, all the Trump books aren't so valuable anymore. Reader interest in Trump is going to drop very quickly. So everything we got, you know, the Cohen book coming out and... Uh, they're all lined up because everybody who has left this administration or everybody who's got their own big expose of the dysfunction behind the scenes in the Trump White House. I have news for you, investigative reporters. We can see the dysfunction in the Trump White House because it's not behind the scenes. It's very often right in front of us. So, uh, and so this is what, you know, look, the president has gotten himself in trouble with this, you know, with this. But everything that was in the Post yesterday was really painted as this giant you won't believe what the president said. What, what you and I have talked about on this podcast is probably one of the most annoying uh, tones or subtexts to this entire presidency because, yes, Trump says a lot of shocking things every single day. This is what Trump does. This is what uh, Trump likes to do. This is Trump's motivation. Trump wants to never be boring. And he's much more interested in shocking people than saying things that are accurate. I think mean, that's very clear. So when you say Trump downplayed the threat, what did we think was happening when Trump said back in January, February, March, we have it totally under control? 
did anybody look at that and say, oh, well, clearly, you know, like, we, no, we didn't have it under control. When he said we pretty much shut it down coming in from China, it's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. If you couldn't tell <laughs> that that was downplaying, that, that you really needed some smelling salts of some kind. Um, and I just went in today's morning, show, I went through every quote that was in the, the article yesterday that represents one of the big scoops from uh, from Woodward. And almost all of them have some parallel to something the president said in public, sometimes generating a controversy for a day or two. Like the time he said, I think I've done more for the black community than any other president. And let's take a pass at Abraham Lincoln because he did good, although it's always questionable. <laughs> Really? What's that questionable about what Lincoln did for the African-American? Anyway, um, you know, so you go down this list. I think the one that jumped out at me the most is that back in May, announcing U.S. Space Force, Trump started talking about what he called the super, the super duper missile. I'm not making that up. That is what he called it. And he said it was 17 times faster than what they have right now. Greg, do you remember that back in May? No. Right. I'd be curious about how many listeners remember. So, so think about this. In an announcement ceremony for Space Force, the president blurts out that we have a missile that travels 17 times faster than any existing missile. And it wasn't big news. That's the kind of presidency it's been. So the president should, has no one to blame but himself for going out, giving these you know conversations with Woodward, either not remembering that he's on the record, not caring that he's on the record, or not realizing that this was going to end up in a book that was going to make him uh, look pretty bad. The idea that, oh, I'm going to charm Bob Woodward, or I'm going to spin Bob Woodward, and I'm going to get him to, to write nice things about me. Every president has made this mistake. Every pre- it's, a, it's like a Jedi mind trick that seems to work, and that, Bob Wood- that every president seems to fall for this. This is going to be, I think, Greg, the toughest news cycle for President Trump until the next one. (laughs) Lastly, on the Woodward thing, he did take some heat from the media yesterday uh, for not revealing that sooner and waiting for the book to come out. His argument was by the time Trump told him that, Trump had already done everything publicly, including the the European travel ban and uh, uh, the 15 days uh, to to stop the spread and, uh, and and flatten the curve and so forth. And so there was nothing else to reveal when they had that conversation. So fair or unfair to to savage Bob Woodward over not talking about it sooner. So I, it's like, I think Woodward's argument that if I had if I had done this as a front page story in the Washington Post. He would not have changed much of anything. I, I think that is a, a a pretty fair assessment. The other thing I kind of jump out at is that this is oftentimes I don't know if this I don't think this was the case for Woodward, but very often you'll have reporters who will get almost like quasi embedded, right? They will be allowed to see and hear things, and the information is sort of embargoed. And the one that kind of jumps out at me was the book Shattered by. Uh, Uh, a couple folks who worked for Politico and the Hill last time, and they were inside the Hillary Clinton campaign. And in the Hillary Clinton campaign, they had all kinds of scoops that things were not going well, Um, that they didn't have enough materials, that they were hearing warning signs about Florida. In other words, if you were inside like the right places in the Hillary Clinton campaign, you knew that she was, that the campaign was something of a paper tiger. It was not running as smoothly as the conventional wisdom suggested. And that she was in danger of losing this. But these two reporters, I think it was Jonathan Allen and uh, some woman whose name escapes me, but they, 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 they knew this, but they couldn't report any of this because they had to save it for their book coming out after the election. I think this is, you get into some journalistically very thorny waters. Would, I guess waters aren't thorny, but uh, 
thorny bushes, murky waters, you know, a whole bunch of metaphors that put to, to create some very difficult landscape because you put yourself in a situation where you have information that is of public interest and it'd be of greater interest and of greater consequence to the public if they heard it now, but you can't because you've already made this agreement with your source and you're going to hold it until afterwards. And also, let's face it, if you put this story in Politico, then it means a whole bunch of clicks, which is pretty good. But if you put this information in your book, it means more book sales. And you'd much rather have people spending 20-something dollars for a hard copy version of your book than clicking on an article, spending nothing, and maybe the you know pay, uh, page views goes up, which eventually had, helps your ad rates down the road. Not that you know journalists could ever be so selfish like that. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. On every edition of the Sarah Carter Podcast, I say we're taking back the story, and that's exactly what we have to do. Whether it's the Russia hoax, the relentless attacks on President Trump pretending Antifa doesn't exist, or covering up for the repressive Chinese government, the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. It's up to us to uncover the truth and share it with others. Please join me in taking back the story on the Sarah Carter podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about our crazy martini now, Jim. And you all know that um, our tax dollars are wasted, sometimes at best, and spent on really horrible things at worst. This is one of those stories. Let's uh, talk about Chris Rufo here. He is a writer for the City Journal and is also affiliated with the Heritage Foundation. This is his Twitter thread from a couple days ago. Last month, the Department of Education-funded organization hosted a conference on abolishing the United States. He says, I've obtained shocking leaked documents from the keynote session, which encourages teachers to, quote, create disruption, abolish capitalism, and tear down America. According to minutes from the session, the keynote speaker, Bettina Love, open by saying that America, quote, has oppressed people of color for 400 years and that teachers must consciously tear down a system that oppresses people and build a new world. The organization hosting the conference, known as CAST, that's an acronym, has uh, received more than $16 million in taxpayer funding under the Trump administration, and this conference on abolition was attended by Department of Education staff. The speaker also argued that the United States has a racial contract that says it's okay for white people to kill blacks with immunity, and that President Trump deliberately allowed the coronavirus to kill people of color. Uh, somehow he was able to specifically direct that. Uh, she also claimed that uh, reform is not enough and that public school teachers must push for the abolition of prisons, overthrowing the capitalist wage labor system, radically changing the school system, and tearing down structures that impede anti-racist education. She then demanded that white people need to get out of white emotionality and be willing to give up their wealth. Going to stop there because people do have things to do with the rest of their day, Jim. Uh, $16 million of taxpayer funding on crap like this. You know, Greg, I'm so old I can remember when the problem was students creating disruptions in the classroom. (laughs) Now we're being told that teachers must create disruption. Uh, you know, by the way, I just got to look at look out at your your world, America, look out your window, look at our streets full of graffiti and, you know, storefronts boarded up to deal with rioters and, and looting and violence. Let's look at the, you know, statues that have been torn down and the people who've been injured tearing down those statues. Let's look at our economy. Let's look at what the pandemic has done to us. Is it possible we've had enough disruption? I don't know about you, Greg. I'm ready for some ruption. <laughs> I'm ready for some actual not. You know, I'm ready for some order and stability and some things not being disrupted. I know this idea of like you know, 
everybody in Silicon Valley wants to be, we're a disruptor. No, no. How about how about something just runs smoothly? I just want things to work, Greg. Is that is that really too much to ask? Like teachers, I'd really love for you to teach kids. A whole bunch of you are doing it, but these people at this conference are not that interested in it. They're interested in disrupting. You know what can't happen if there's a lot of disruption going on? Education. Be an activist, be a teacher. Pick one. That's my that's my that's what I put on the table to you, education community. Do you want these people teaching your kids? That's the question, I guess. Uh, uh, if they stuck to the curriculum, maybe. I mean, that's, a, but, that's a good point. I, theoretically, we should be happy that they're focused on disruption because if they do that, they're not wasting any time, you know, teaching. Yeah, just disgusting. So, good luck, everybody. <laughs> if you, uh, you, you know, a lot of these school districts don't want you eavesdropping on your kids' Zoom distance learning sessions. I can't hey, imagine. What are you doing? Whoa, whoa. Who, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Are you? Is this in my house? Are you educating my kid in my house? <laughs> But I'm going to listen to that. You know when you can get me out of the classroom? When the classroom's not in my house. Can't imagine what they wouldn't want you to hear. But now I think we're starting to understand clearer and clearer every day. Jim, on that note, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget about our great sponsors over at ExpressVPN, expressvpn.com slash martini. And by signing up that way, you can get an extra three months free. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Give us a kind review and a five-star rating. We'd be very, very grateful for that. Also, you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. We'll see you Friday on the Three Martini Lunch.